You are tired of average. You want more out of life. You know you're capable of something greater. This show will help you become resilient in your home, at work, and in your community. Welcome to the Resilient Humans Podcast with your host, Kevin Wood. All right, welcome back to the Resilient Humans Podcast. I have a special guest today. Uh, it's Eric Williams. He's a pain-free fitness coach, owner of Edge for Life Fitness Training, and his main focus is really just creating longevity and fitness sport, or really any activity that, that people are interested in doing. Um, I'm going to plug you right off the bat here. I just checked out your Instagram, and holy crap, it is filled with absolute gold information. Like, as soon as I saw a couple of videos, I was like, that needs a follow. So to anyone listening, hit pause, go to the show notes, start following this guy right now. I guarantee it's it's going to be worth it. So Eric, welcome to the show. Thank you. And uh, I, I appreciate the the kind words. It's been um, an interesting journey, you know, putting this stuff up on the social media. For sure. So you're, you're in California. I'm on the complete opposite end of the continent, uh, up in New Brunswick. Um, What's it like down there? What's the fitness scene like down in uh, California? Um, it is happening, to say the least. I mean, you know, in, in the time that I've been a gym owner, I've always been within like eyesight or, or stones throw from the next closest gym. And I can see a yoga studio there and around the corner is an advertisement for another. I mean, it's very, very saturated. So, you know, sometimes I'll hear about other gym owners and they're the only gym or two in the town. And I'm not even the only gym in my complex. There's there's a wow. Ninja Warrior gym, there's a Jiu-Jitsu center, uh, there's a our gym and a CrossFit gym in our uh, little business park of like 13 suites. So it's very very dense, um, but that's good. I mean that that kind of means that there's plenty to eat, there's plenty to go around. Um, people are fitness minded in general. People are out doing stuff. So that's awesome. It's cool. There's yeah, a lot. A lot. That's a little different than here. I mean, there's a lot of different things happening, but they're all sure. quite a drive away from each other. So um, it's awesome to hear that. And I hope that kind of migrates up to our side of the world here. So sure. hopefully yeah. um, what got you into fitness in the first place? And first of all, how long have you been in the fitness space? Uh, I've been in the fitness space about 11, 12 years um, and it kind of, jumped right into it as a gym owner. So my business partner was the, the technical expert, master's in kinesiology, strength coach at Fresno State. Um, and I came in as kind of like the business operational technical, uh, like a administrative type thing. Uh, you know, I was doing other things. I have a degree in a different area. And then just as time went on, just more and more fitness stuff, accumulated more knowledge, started coaching classes. And so 12 years later, I, I like to consider myself pretty knowledgeable about the things I'm doing and what's going on, but it's definitely been a, a more roundabout journey than, um, than some who, you know, kind of made this their passion from the get. So all in, you know, about a decade and change. What pulled you into that? So you were kind of on the admin side, what pulled you into the helping other side of it? It's, I mean, there's just this compelling element of fitness and seeing people succeed and growing your own fitness and just being a part of like, the juice and the machinery of helping people. And it was far more compelling than what I was doing for my nine to five. And so the nine to five, you know, I was doing both. And so eventually I had to make a decision and the nine to five uh, didn't, didn't win. Didn't, didn't make the cut. <laughs> 
Do you have any um, particular stories in mind that, that kind of helped you make that decision, like a solid decision? Uh, no, I mean, it, it was, it was maybe just an inevitability that I knew, but, um, at one point, you know, I was working and, uh, I was working in human resources and I was doing a very large scale, very intense recruitments. And I was also trying to grow this gym and it was honestly kind of breaking me. And so I, you know, went to my employer and, you know, they knew I was doing both. And I was like, can I take a sabbatical? Can I like just take a moment to figure things out? And so, you know, the second I started having those discussions, I was like, I don't, I don't stick it around because I'm, I'm essentially asking my employer to have time to work on my business. And so from their perspective, the fact that they granted me any leniency in that regard was obviously very generous of them, but um, it just, uh, it, I think the writing was on the wall at this point that I was jumping into this. Cool. And what would you say is now your, we call it, I guess, an area of genius? What is your cream of the crop, bread and butter? What's what's doing it for you these days? Pain-free fitness. And so, you know, I'm, I'm, there's a lot to unpack there. I mean, like, what does that even mean? But like, just as a, as a bullet point, it's helping people get out of pain, prevent future pain and structure workouts and activities that don't encourage pain, which is when you get into this space, you realize far more common than you think. We live in sort of like a David Goggins, no shade to him, uh, no pain, no gain, but like this very grit, hardcore. And for some people, that's where they live and thrive. And for other people, they end up breaking down and they're left with, they're like, I can't do anything anymore. I get out of bed and I hurt. I can't run. I can't swim. I can't do the things I want. Um, so the hustle and grind mentality didn't serve them quite as well. And so that's where someone like myself comes in. Yeah, we're, we're definitely going to spend some time unpacking all of that. So sure. it being in the fitness industry for, you know, 11 to 12 years, what are some things that you see other than that hustle grind? Are there some specific things that you see that are causing people to be in more pain than in the past, I guess? Yeah, I mean, man, that, that's like an hour topic all by itself. I'd say in a nutshell. <laughs> It's simply the fact that there's more people doing stuff. And so if you were to rewind, you know, to, to even as recently as the 90s, there aren't as many gyms. There's not as many yoga studios. Spartan Warrior doesn't exist or Spartan races don't exist. Ninja Warrior, I mean, might be in its inception, but we're essentially absent a ton of things. So people are running. Maybe people are occasionally lifting weights. Maybe an odd person's doing yoga, but there isn't this abundance of things to do. And so you have all these new things to do and you could spend every single weekend signing up for a 5k or a race here or some competition, adult rec, soccer league, kickball, you name it. A lot of people are just doing more stuff. And as a result, well, wear and tear on their bodies. And then that tends to, I find coincide with you have an archetype of a person who's let's say between 30 and 40. So they were growing up in the nineties and that's when they grew up and they played sports and they finish college or high school or you know whatever it is, and maybe they played high school athletics, maybe they played college athletics, a decade goes by, they're kind of feeling that. They're like, man, I used to be an athlete. I want to get back into things. You have all these things. And then they jump back into it, and they're like, ah, the elbow, the shoulder, the low back. And, they're, and then they're kind of stuck because like, man, I love doing these things, but they hurt. So I'll go to the gym, but that hurts. And so it becomes this very odd negative feedback loop. And it all kind of starts with people just – wanting to do more stuff and just 
be outside, be active. Would you say that has a lot to do with the type of, um, I don't want to say sedentary lifestyle, it's, but the way that our jobs are set up now, there's, you know, we ha- hear the the quote of the saying, sitting is the new smoking. And so sure. going from sitting in a desk or sitting behind a desk for 40 to 60 hours in a week, and then, yeah, I want to go out and do a Spartan race that weekend. Is that kind of where you're seeing this as well? That I mean, that would be like a really acute thing. So you hear about people kind of going from, from couch to 5k in not enough time. And they pay the price either with knee stuff or shin splints or whatever it is. Um, and so there, there's certainly that element of it, but it, it's what I see more and more often is a active, ambitious weekend warrior type who is fit. I mean, most of the people I work with are reasonably fit. I don't, I don't in the, in this point, don't work with a lot of people who are really in a bad spot in terms of like morbid obesity or like chronic health conditions and stuff like that. It's, it's kind of a a subset of already somewhat fit people that are maybe taking on more than they can chew. And so, you know, you run Spartan races for four years and you do a race every quarter and you're going to the gym and you do that hike. I feel like I'm not a hiker, but I feel like everyone's going for hikes every weekend where I, where I live. And so you get a lot of like downhill deceleration, knee stuff. And so it's, it's more too much stimulus and it's an accumulation of stimulus um, than the sort of like couch to race. Um, I see maybe, I, I see quite a bit less of that. It's interesting. The culture, I guess, down there is vastly different than up here. We're, we're known as the fattest province in Canada. And it's, it's an issue because it's a lot of joint and, and, you know, injuries and chronic pain that, that comes as a result. And so those are the things that are oftentimes preventing people from even starting at a gym or start doing these activities. So it's that they're already in pain and they can't do the things that they see or want to do. It's not the people that are already active and and we still have that. That's obviously still a thing. Um, You know, people come in. I just, I have a couple people in mind. They just come in, you know, and right off the bat, they just want to be the best and race with the the fast yep. guys that are here and they get overwhelmed, not just mentally, but physically their bodies get overwhelmed and then they just shut down. They get hurt some way or another. And then we have to have that chat with them. Look, let's pump the brakes a little bit. Let's slow down. Let's address some key issues here before you get back into the, the swing of things. So oftentimes it's a, it's yes, there's physical training that has to happen, but oftentimes it's a, a conversation that has to happen at the start. So what kind of conversations, I guess, do you have uh, with your clients when they come to you? Um, so I sit down, I was talking with a woman and she vocalized this almost to the T. She goes, I'm type A. I don't like being still. I'm active. I'm a former athlete. And that is an amazing paradigm for excellence in sports. Put me in coach. I can play. I can get it done. I want to do one more rep. I want to be up early. I want to hustle. That is a terrible paradigm for working through injuries. And so if you get to a place where you're a former athlete, which a huge proportion of the people I work with are, and they're busted up and broken, and they want to kind of like type A hustle their way out of it, it tends to grind the gears and be a bit of friction. Whereas... A lot of times I'm asking people to, on a scale of one to 10, how much pain are you in? They go, it's fine. And I go, <laughs> give me a number. 
and they go, it's a five. I'm like, nope, we're not doing fives. We're doing two or less. And so they're sitting here and obviously the folks can't see me, but I'm doing like these very sort of like basic half lunge things. And I might have some hand expander thing or some twisty thing with the wrist. And in their head, I can tell they're like, this isn't hard. This isn't stimulating. I'm not sweating. I'm not like on the floor, just done. Yeah, that's, but that is how we have to go about it. And so the, the folks that I find myself with are the folks that their ambition is maybe their own best enemy or their own worst enemy. And they need someone like me to pump the brakes and be like, I get it. You want to go 5,000 RPMs and we have to go hundred RPMs right. and then that 110 and then 120 until we can work yourself back up to that. That 5,000 RPMs is what got them to you in the first place. Right? Yeah, hundred percent. And many of them, I mean, you know, I worked with a lot of people who had uh, professional athletic ambitions and for only their catastrophic injuries mounting up prevented them from doing that. And so now they're in a place where their mindset is telling them like, you know, I have, I have a guy who goes, he says, uh, his, in the back of his head is his coach saying, get up Hayes. And so it's just, that is his, his talk track is like, don't be a wimp, get up, do the next rep, throw some tape on it. I can get it done. Um, and then you can do that right into crippling back and knee pain. And, and then what do you do? And, and so what? that, yeah. that, that ends up being uh, the, the folks I work with most often these days. That's gotta be tough for some people to, to hear, to say, you know, we're going to slow you down, but it's, yeah. it's necessary. Do you, have you ever had people that are too stubborn to do so? Like they'll, when they're in front of you, they'll do what you're telling them to do. But then as soon as they leave, they go out and just say, I'll screw that. I'm going to still run that 5k or, or do whatever. Yeah. I mean, there, there, there's kind of like a mental process that happens. So first it's just, I mean, this is almost like a, uh, what is it? Five stages of grief or whatever it is. So first yeah, it's yeah. denial or something like that. So people are like, Oh, it'll get better. Oh man, you'll be fine. Oh, it's just a tweak. I'll rest it. I'll put some ice on it. You know, whatever that process is, then it doesn't get better. And they go, well, I'll test it out. I'll just run a little bit. And then eventually that manifests on down the line into, well, I can't run. It hurts to go to bed. I can't sleep. I'm taking 800 milligrams of ibuprofen every single day. And so once they get to that point, many of them just go like, dude, just tell me what to do. I'm yeah. so done with this. And so, yes, if someone's in not that bad of a spot, they'll kind of sneak in a little extra and, and right. want to do some more things. But again, most of the people that find themselves in front of me, which is very oftentimes a referral from somebody else who's in this spot, they're like, dude, I, you don't have to warn me about running. I'm, I've given up. I, I don't know what hit to do. rock bottom I, basically. Yeah. I'm in so much pain that like, don't worry, I'm not going for sneaky runs. Okay. What are some of the main or the common issues that you see specifically? I mean, it's, it's exactly what you'd expect. It's knee, it's low back, it's shoulder. Um, there's not any like kind of surprising specific things. It's just people play sports, they get banged up and you're most your most force producing joints are going to be your knees in terms of what they're uh, not force producing, but what they have to transist into your feet to run and jump and do all that stuff. And then your shoulders end up being because you have so much range of motion and so much dexterity, you kind of pay the price in lack of stability. And so it's shoulders are so sensitive that, I mean, almost everyone's got shoulder stuff going on. And so, but you take that to, you know, an extreme degree and all of a sudden it's like, I can't, I can't lift my arm. I, I can't, unscrew pickle jars you know 
it can get pretty extreme pretty quickly. Um, but it's not, it's not anything that is surprising. Yeah. Knees, little backs and shoulders. Can we just get a little nerdy here for a second? Cause sure. not all of our listeners have an anatomy degree. Can you just sure. describe the structure of a shoulder and kind of sure. what, what type of joint that is in kind of layman's terms? Yeah. So a uh, shoulder is a ball and socket joint and it, it is not even a ball and socket joint, like in a literal sense. So I heard somebody describe it as a uh, golf ball and tee joint. And so you can imagine if you've ever been golfing that uh, the ball very easily falls off the tee. Well, lucky for the human anatomy is you got basically a bunch of muscles and connective tissue that kind of glue it into place. But the problem is, is there isn't really any fixed structures that specifically keep your shoulder pinned down like your fingers. Like my fingers don't easily dislocate. I really, I mean, they're small, but I really have to put a lot on them proportionally to dislocate a finger, right? I mean, a lot of uh, pressure where people, man, you hear about people dislocating their shoulders, just like reaching behind them in the car and, you know, pressing ordinary dumbbells, 20, 30 pounds, or just, it's your, your shoulder is a fairly precarious joint, but it gives you a lot of dexterity. You can do stuff, you can throw, you can golf. And so you got this ball and socket joint. It's loosely put together with a bunch of relatively small, relatively weak muscles. And as life, you know, you refer to, you know, kind of like the office setting, life tends to bring us kind of down and forward. And so you can imagine bad posture of your shoulders kind of sinking down and forward. And that's all of those muscles in the back that basically cause your shoulder to sink back into the socket, down and back into the socket where it ought to be. All those muscles fatigue, they get weak. And then either pain, I shouldn't say people dislocate their shoulders like all over the place. I don't want to give people too much concern there. It usually, it usually ends up being tendonitis, just erosion of the uh, cartilage surfaces and the ball and socket joint. And then people just feel kind of junky in their shoulders. So what can somebody do to start kind of bulletproofing their joints? There's lots of different joints all over the body. So what are some practical things that people could do to actually help bulletproof those? That's a, that's a great question. And where to begin is, is maybe like two parts. One is where do you hurt? And so if you specifically have shoulder pain or wrist pain or knee pain is doing simple movements, most of them, you, you know, if you just Googled, how do I solve wrist pain? Chances are, and you go to videos or pictures, I mean, there's endless amounts of free material out there that's going to generally point you in the right direction. And that generally involves moving the tissue. And so some, some interesting stuff that, you know, I've dug up just through my reading is, you know, th this physical therapist that I really enjoy his stuff um, basically says like, look, all the therapies, everything, you name it, uh, cortisone injections, electrostimulation, ice, the whole list, none of it works. And he's being a little bit hyperbolic, but he's basically saying it won't give you any lasting outcomes beyond a couple of weeks. So you get some relief and then you're back to where you started. The only thing that's going to help you is movement. And so literally using your muscles to deliver blood flow, deliver nutrients, deliver synovial fluid to the joints and lay down the foundations for essentially building tissue. So if you have weak tissue, well, then you get stronger tissue, things get a little bit better. So that's kind of one is what hurts. You could Google, how do I fix this pain? And most of them are simple and kind of boring and tedious, but it's going to give you a good step in the right direction. The other one is like, Suppose you're in no pain and you're like, all right, everything's pretty good. What should I do to make sure I don't have future pain? And in that case, I would recommend starting from the ground up. And so 
a lot of the human dysfunction just arrives from, well, you got generally weak feet and your calves have atrophied a little bit and your hamstrings aren't what they used to be. And so you get this whole chain that leads to, man, my back is just killing me. Well, it's because the, the trunks of the tree have withered. And so the upstream branches don't really have the support they used to. And so that involves things like doing calf raises, pushing and pulling sleds, walking backwards, doing like unilateral lunge type movements, supposing you have the strength, you don't have any pain there, starting from the ground up, toes, feet, calves, ankles, knees, quads, hammies, glutes, and just rebuild that. And for, I don't know, I'm just going to kind of pull this out of thin air, but I would say for half of all people, if all they did would just get stronger legs, their quality of life would improve. I agree. It's the foundation of our being. We we need them 100%. in order, right? I love I love what you said there about the kind of some of the non non functional type stuff. Uh, sure. Oftentimes, CrossFit gets a bad rap for staying in the frontal plane, like everything's you know both arms, both legs working at the same time. Right. And just yesterday, we were doing reverse uh, bear crawl sandbag drags. That's about as rotational and unilateral as you can make it. And right. so we always try to throw those types of movements in at least once a week to kind of break up that the monotony of the same mo planes of motion being used all the time, you know, pull up straight up and down squats, right. straight up and down deadlift, straight up and down. So if we can get those rotational and, and unilateral movements in there. It's obviously going to help people hopefully stay out of pain in the, in the long term. Yeah. I noticed that you, you mentioned, uh, who was that? Um, was it a therapist that you were mentioned? Oh, it's a Robin McKenzie. Okay. And so they're saying basically gadgets aren't going to fix the problems. It's mostly movement. And do you see that as a common thing that people are relying on gadgets or the next gadget to help fix their pain or their problems? Yeah, I did that. I did that for a decade. I tell me, own, tell me about that. I own it all. I own all the doodads and all the neck things and all the wrists tweakers and movers and this is this is a place where i could get into a lot of trouble when people were like well that's not what the literature says and you know trying to to illustrate this in a, in a relatively straightforward way but here's my best approximation of it if i foam roll i am basically just putting pressure on a muscle well what is that going to do it as far as i know cannot actually change the nature or structure of your muscle so somebody might say, well, but it feels good. It's like, okay, well, why? So if I've got a very tight muscle and I'm, I'm kind of just using my hands as an example here, I'm just kind of like, if my hands are this muscle and it's short and it's tight, well, if I put pressure on it, I get a momentary bit of length. And if I get a momentary bit of length, I might get relief on my joints. And so if that helps you prepare or, you know, get into the groove or get some blood flow going, I mean, foam rolling, there's no doubt like you can foam roll and man, you're like, man, my glutes, and my hamstrings feel like kind of warm and fired up. I'd say from an anecdotal sense, there's not really there's nothing wrong with that. There's some data I believe out there about like foam rolling versus sprinting performance and jumping performance. And it's not particularly good. And it suggests like best case scenarios, foam rolling is a waste of time. Worst case is it undermines your performance. And then there's, you know, a lot of discussion of like, well, what can foam rolling do? And I'm kind of picking on foam rolling because it's the most obvious one that most people know about. What can it do for your fascia? And the conclusion, as far as I understand it, is basically like, well, nothing, because your fascia is 
so freaking dense and resilient that you kind of rubbing foam on it for 30 to 60 seconds is just totally inadequate to make change. So it's like, well, then how do you make change? Well, you put stress on your tissues and your tissues adapt and all the little myofibrils and the osteocytes in your bones and all these little things respond to mechanical stress in a way that's totally different than if you just massage something really hard. So then kind of back to center, like, well, what do we do with these gadgets? Well, some of them have use cases. So I have an iron neck, but an iron neck is a neck gadget that facilitates neck exercise. And so your neck gets a little better versus foam rolling or lacrosse ball or, uh, you know, that stick that's got the hook and you kind of dig into your back. Those things might feel good, but it's, it's, I have no indicators, especially using them personally and having them in my gym for a decade that they actually are going to do anything that's going to improve you long-term besides maybe feeling slightly better for this session. And I want to say that, that I don't think there's anything wrong with that either. We definitely, we still do foam rolling, lacrosse ball, massage work here as well. And it's almost like daily flossing. If you just floss once, it's not going to do anything for your teeth or your gums. It's something that's done daily. And so it's not that don't do it ever, but don't expect to have long-term lasting results from doing it. I think that's the key message. Yeah. And, you know, I'll throw an anecdote at you and myself. I have not foam rolled, been to the chiropractor, done lacrosse ball work or iced or taking ibuprofen or cryo chamber or you name it. I haven't done that stuff in a year. And it's not because I'm trying to be a tough guy. I haven't felt the impulse to do it. And I own a Hypervolt. I own the old school car buffer version. Yes. I've spent thousands on all this stuff. And so I wanted nothing more than for these things to work. And they never gave me the things I was looking for beyond getting into, you know, this quote unquote pain-free fitness where it's like, all right, let's get to the tissue at the source and let's make it so that you don't feel like you need to foam roll. I'm not even like demonizing foam rolling. I'm just saying like, well, can we go a layer deeper and just not have to do it at all if possible? And just ask the question, why are you doing it in the first place? Like if, if you can get to the root cause of that, then it'll probably give you a pretty good answer. Do you, yeah. have you noticed in, I guess, in your time doing this, um, activities that have been the most problematic? That is going to depend a lot on the joints itself, but just in a very general sense, Sitting is problematic for the hips. Uh, not always, but a huge proportion of the people that sit chronically have got poor hamstring function. They've got poor hip flexion and extension. Um, they tend to not have full mobility of the knees. And then upstream, they're going to also tend to, by extension, you're you're not just sitting just to sit. You're probably using a computer. And so they'll tend to lack full range flexion and extension of the hand, which can lead into wrist and elbow pain. And then if you've got forward rounding of the shoulders, because I'm kind of hunched over at a desk, the lack of the ability to basically sit upright and take your shoulders down and back into the sockets, mid back, upper neck. So when people super, actually one of the most common ones is people like, oh, my neck is so tight. I need to move it and crack it and stretch it. And my rebuttal back to them is like, well, you don't need a longer neck. 
you need a stronger neck. Like your neck is, <laughs> is perfectly adequate in terms of its length. Um, it's just weak and it just can't hold up your freaking heavy head anymore. And so you're, if you're constantly just letting your head fall down and you're getting tech neck and you're sitting there on your phone, it's like, well, we need something to like get you back up. Right. And so that's, that's kind of like your office paradigm, if you will. Yeah. And I've noticed that as well. It's a lot of the slump, slump shoulders, forward shoulders. Yep. And so oftentimes it's a matter of pulling and strengthening everything in the back, the backside. So a lot of rows instead of, well, what do the guys typically do at the gym only? It's a bench press, yep. <laughs> bench press and curls. So everything's on the front. It's literally pulling them forward and they're doing nothing for the backside. So um, yeah, we definitely spend a lot of time focused on posterior chain. 100%. Um, what are some, uh, let's say, what are some low hanging fruit and challenging problems that, that you've come across? Um, so the, the quote unquote easiest things to solve is just that which you could attribute to lack of movement. And so, you know, I'll, t- I'll talk to people sometimes like I sat button chair 10 hours in a row. I was like, Oh, geez you coming to the gym for 60 minutes a couple of times a week does almost nothing to overturn the 60 hours that you're just sitting stagnant in a chair. And then, you know, supposing you're sleeping at least hope, at least hopefully six hours a night, if not closer to seven or eight. And so you have a huge proportion of your life where you're just not moving. So do something. I mean, I was a weird guy in the office. I had a yoga mat and a lacrosse ball and I had all the <laughs> stuff. And so people would come by and like, what are you doing? Like, I just need to get out of my chair for two minutes. And, you know, I'm of the mindset, obviously everyone's work situation is different. I was like, look, the, the company will go on without you. I promise you, you do not actually have to work as hard as you think you do. Like you can take two minutes to make sure that you can sleep tonight because you're not so stiff. Like, I mean, no, no one, no one is like, uh, I think that critical to their organization's function that they can't take two minutes to stop for just a second. And move. So that's a low hanging fruit. It's just move. I mean, like do what, honestly, get out of your chair, walk around, go get a sip of water, walk some stairs. I mean, it could be literally anything. The tougher things are what happens when you don't move for like two decades. And so there comes a point where I, I don't have data to back this up, but like when, and this, this tends to happen more often in men, but there comes a certain point where let's say you're 55 years old, you've never exercised a day in your life, or it's been two or three decades. Some of the structures that you're dealing with, they might be permanent. Like I, I haven't seen good evidence that I'm like, man, unless you really spent the subsequent two decades putting in the work that you're going to be able to restore like good thoracic mobility, that you're going to be able to restore your shoulder and knee and hip function. Like if you, if it's been that long and you're that stuck in stone, I don't know what promise there is of getting back out of that. And the reason why I say that happens more often to men is just on average, women are a little more flexible than men women or uh, men are going to tend to have more muscle mass. And so you combine those two things together with imp- with lack of movement and you just turn into a frigging rock that just nothing moves. And that's, that can be pretty tough to get out of. Would you say that it's not getting them back to full function, but you still could get them back some function? 
a hundred percent. And so, you know, and, and well, and it's tricky too, because a lot of that, that same paradigm I described that guy, even though he's relatively sedentary might also be playing tennis fairly aggressively twice a week. And so you have complete immobility punctuated with high intensity with almost certainly no warm up and almost certainly no cool down and almost certainly no strength training going hard as possible. Like they're 26, but they're actually 56. And you ask them like, Hey, how's body feeling today? And they're like, every joint that I have hurts. Like, wow. Okay. Well, where do we begin? And so it, especially in my area, you know, we're, we're, you know, I mentioned this sort of like athletic outdoorsy kind of type. You have this paradigm of I work as hard as possible and I nose to the grindstone for 70 hours a week. And then I go as hard as possible playing tennis or racquetball or whatever it is. And then <laughs> your body is just like, dude, I, I can't handle this like zero to 60 back to zero, you know, kind of a kind of paradigm. And then you're a hundred percent downing, just chugging, you know, ibuprofen or something to to make up. for uh, Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Not good. Um, all right, Eric, look, I have maybe one final question. We'll see if it might sure. spark another, but I always ask all of my guests at the end of the, uh, the episode, if they have what's one piece of practical, useful advice that you can give somebody to become a more resilient human. And we have different types of resiliency. And I think your, I guess, area of genius would be that physical resiliency. Sure. So what, what piece of advice could you give to our listeners? I would say prioritizing ranges of motion. And sometimes we get hung up on strength or we get hung up on cardio. And those things are fairly elastic. So if you went out and you worked on your cardio for the next six weeks, you would get an appreciable increase in your cardio. Same thing with strength training. You go out and you do some bench press and squats. You have your baseline. You work hard for six weeks. You get a PR you could unproductively stretch for 10 years and get nowhere at all and wonder what the hell you're doing with your time. And so it is to frame that it is so disproportionately difficult in my estimation to get your range of motion back once you lose it compared to the other things that you could do. And so if you had to pick one thing, it would be get your ranges of motion because building strength on top of that's a piece of cake. Building cardio on top of that's going to feel better than your lack of range of motion. But your lack of range of motion will deteriorate and erode your quality of life long term. What does that mean? Now, t- d- dive into that. What does prioritize range of motion mean? Give me a practical uh, example of that. Sure. So here, here is the most frightening statistic I can share with you. Women over the age of 50, if they break their hip, are 50%, uh, I'm sorry, hold on. Women over the age of 50, if they break their hip, they have a 50% chance of not being alive a year later. Wow. And so don't quote me on the precise numbers and the precise percentages, but let me let me just make clear that it is horrifying. When I, when I came across this statistic, I was horrified. And so, okay, so what does this have to do with range of motion? So breaking your hip is, could be summarized as a problem of range of motion. So why do I break my hip? Well, I trip. Well, why do I trip? Well, because there's a surface that I don't clear with my leg. Well, why don't I clear it with my leg? Well, my head, my leg literally gets too heavy. I lose the hip flexor strength and dexterity to lift my leg high enough to clear a curb. This is exactly what happened to my grandmother. She was walking to the place she always walks to, and she tripped on a curb that she's never tripped on before. But there's a second part of that. 
if I trip and I'm young and agile and healthy, well, my other leg comes to the rescue and I basically plant that foot and I do this lunge catch thing. If I lose both of those things, I fall and break my hip. And so range of motion quite literally could be the difference between life and death. And here's the test. If you just put your hand out like at about belly button height and you can't reach and tap your knee to your own hand, that's difficult. Like you should be able to just do this endlessly, almost just like a knee raise hand tap. If you lack that ability to be strong through that range of motion, that is a wake up call that like a broken hip or some sort of hip dysfunction or hip replacement might be in your future. And so, and it all just kind of comes back to the basics, hip strength, don't trip, be able to catch yourself, don't break your hip, don't end up in the hospital, continue to live, right? Pretty important. <laughs> yeah, I would say so. So would you say a functional full range of motion squat would be another good indicator of proper hip range of motion and function? It absolutely could. And, you know, the only reason why I don't use a squat as an example is the more I get into this space, the more I actually put squatting as a higher order skill that isn't obtainable. Like if I've got an 80 year old woman, the probability of her being able to actually squat in a meaningful way that isn't also risky that goes down tremendously versus somebody in their twenties that was a soccer player. Like, yeah, let's squat. Your squat looks great. Okay, cool. We're squatting. But what I can do with that 80 year old woman is exactly what I just said. I can have her hold yeah. onto a rail, put her own hand out and say, give me 20 knee taps. I need you to tap your hand with your knee 20 times. And so, mm -hmm. yes, a squat absolutely represents that, but I'm thinking in sort of the case of, well, what is the, what is the absolute floor to introduce this kind of stuff. And it becomes just, just hip flexion. And the relative intensity of, of doing 20 of those leg raises for that 80 year old is going to be almost as effective as the 20 reps of an air squat for somebody that's in their thirties or forties and have much yeah. motion, right? Absolutely. Right. So it's all, it's all scaled to the individual. And so in, in the space that I play, my, my, my essentially scaling has to be much broader. It has to be like, it, it has to have such a low floor that it's, it's acceptable to any person, but then also high enough where, you know, I've, I've got um, a major league pitcher I'm working with. And so it has to be also high enough to throw 98 miles an hour. So right. it ends up being pretty broad. That's awesome. Eric, this has been an amazing conversation. Is there anything else you'd like to let our listeners know or any other info that you can share? Oh, I could go on and on, but I would say <laughs> at a minimum, work on your range of motion, try and work out without pain, try not to gut through pain. Um, yeah, that's something we didn't talk about a ton. So final note is you don't have to experience pain in order to have progress forward. And I realize that's a bit of a cliffhanger. It's like, what, how? But pursue that notion. You do not have to be in pain to make progress. Do you have a newsletter that people can sign up for that could get more information on this? I do have a newsletter. Yes, absolutely. I'm going to share that in the show notes. I think it's a, it's a spot where you can just kind of fill in your info and, and then you'll get that that newsletter as well. So Yes. Um, pretty simple. Anyone listen to this, follow Eric. I swear to God, the stuff that on, is on his page is, is absolute gold. So again, Eric, it's been great to have you. Um, excellent conversation. I hope this resonates with a lot of our listeners and I wish you all the best in your future endeavors. Yeah, I know. It was, it was great to be on here and share some of these things. So, uh, you know, I really appreciate the opportunity. Right on. Thanks again. 
Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with others or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest episodes, be sure to subscribe, and I'll see you next time.